So as you know, we're in the middle of our uh, four-part series on the big picture of how God is at work. And in Tuesday at a community group, we were looking at this passage of Colossians 1, and my wife and I said, we could read this passage 12 times and still not understand everything that's going on. And so it would be helpful as we're looking at this passage, just to remember the last two weeks of what we've been talking about, which two weeks ago, how God created everything and He made it good. The original goodness of God's creation and how last week we looked at the rebellion of the creation of us against this good God. So thinking about those two things, about the the goodness of God's original, all of the goodness of all of God's original creation and the extensiveness of rebellion... And so now we can, can look at that and see how Christ is redeeming us, how he has redeemed us, and how he is in the, redeeming this world. So let us pray. Lord, we come and we need your help to see how big your salvation is, how big your redemption is. Lord, it is something that is so good and glorious, but takes the eyes of faith to believe and see. So, Lord, grant us faith as we look into your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm just going to read again part of this. So if you follow in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13, because there's so much going on. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Christ is the King of the kingdom. And who is this Christ who redeems us and has forgiven us of our sins? He is the image of the invisible God. In verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of His cross. You see, verse 13 and 14 in some ways are a preamble before this next part just talking about who Christ is. And what we see in verse 13 and 14 as we read that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I think one of the big things we see in that verse right there is that Christ is the King who forgives our sins. You see, He is the King over a kingdom. And God the Father has delivered us from out of something, out of slavery, and He has delivered us, transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. That is a picture of redemption. It's being delivered out of this rebellion, this willful slavery and rebellion to sin, and it's being transferred into the loving and good kingdom of the Son of God. That's redemption. And it says another way to put it is the forgiveness of our sins. You see, 
The forgiveness of sins is our redemption. And for a rebel, you think about it from this sense, for a rebel to be allowed back into the good kingdom of Jesus Christ requires a king to forgive a rebel. For a rebel to be pardoned, the king has to be the one to pardon us, to forgive us. And this is exactly what we see that Christ has done here. Christ is the king who forgives us of our sin and our rebellion. It takes a king to forgive our rebellion and sin. So I want you to think this image of who is Jesus. Get this image of who is Jesus in your head. At the beginning of every semester, uh, Jose and I uh, go to... EPCC, and we try and pass out flyers and we ask people surveys, questions, to see if they have any kind of spiritual interest in coming to a Bible study. And so one of the questions we always ask at the beginning of the semester, as we're just walking around the Valle Verde campus in particular of EPCC, we ask them, who is Jesus? So we go around. And you know what's interesting is we actually get a lot of people say, well, Jesus is my Savior. And that's good. That's the right. That's a that's a good and right answer. Now, sometimes I will probe a little bit deeper, and a couple times I've probed deeper and asked, "Well, how is Jesus your savior?" And I've gotten this response: "Well, Jesus is my savior because he gave me his teachings to follow and showed me how to live by his example." At that point, I would say, "No, no, no! Just, just stop." stop. <laughs> It was better before you kept answering. (laughs) See, that is not how Jesus is our Savior. You get this image of who Jesus is in your head, and sometimes we think Jesus is a teacher, and that is that. That is true. Or maybe Jesus is a good example. But this is not the image of who Christ is when it comes to our salvation and to our redemption. See, when we, when we are left with Jesus as an example, think about it. It's, it's saying, be like Jesus. Follow like Jesus. Do what he did. Now, if, if, if you grew up um, like me in the 90s and 2000s in evangelical Christianity, we had this thing called the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. And uh, the What Would Jesus Do bracelet is a bracelet that you would wear, that I wore. And it was, if you're thinking about doing something bad, you just look at your armband and it says, well, what would Jesus do? And so you are told, you know, to dry and do what Jesus would do. And so when you're playing video games and your sister wants a turn, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would share. Or maybe, obviously, your sister's possessed and maybe Jesus would cast a demon out of that person, your sister. But here's the problem with what would Jesus do, where Jesus is your example, is that what would Jesus do bracelet becomes shackles. It becomes a, a band. It becomes chains. Because when you're left with Jesus' example, all you, you come to realize is how short you oftentimes fall of it. Or if the, the message of who Jesus is to you is that he is a teacher... You're left with his teachings that are so beyond what we can are able to do in ourselves that you will fail. 
The problem is that when Jesus becomes a higher, he becomes a higher standard that you fail to reach. And he becomes like that perfect older sibling who you're always trying to be like, but you can't. And you imagine a relationship in which God is saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? If only you were more like him, I'd love you or be proud of you. And that's what we start thinking and so we can begin to resent God and feel bitter towards him and despise his son. But the good thing is, who is Jesus here? Jesus is the king who forgives us of our sins. He is the redeemer. This is who Christ is. He forgives us because he went through that darkness, the domain of darkness, but he wasn't weighed down upon it. He rose from the grave again, and now he rules over kingdom. And as the king, he pardons us of our sins. And because of that, we are now in Christ's kingdom. And when God sees us, he says, even though you were more rebellious than you knew and more sinful than you knew, yet in Christ, I love you dearly as my child. It's important that I remember who this Jesus is and that he is a king. He is the king who forgives us of our sins. One of the questions then becomes... Well, can Jesus, can Jesus really, truly forgive all of my sins? Is he really enough? One of the things that we like to say here at Las Tierras is that salvation is Jesus plus nothing. Salvation equals Jesus plus nothing. But the question is, what do I need to add some works to it? Do I need more to it? And what he goes on to explaining how Jesus can be the one who forgives all of our sins is he goes on into the next verses and says, yes, Jesus is enough because Jesus is God. He is enough because he is the one who is God. You see in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse Chapter 2, verse 9, it says, In Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This person, Jesus, is fully God, is what it's saying. And then in verse 16, it says, By Him, all things were created. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. This idea that Jesus holds all the molecules of the universe together. That he created all things and therefore is before them and outside of creation. He is the creator, not the created. These are all attributes of the creator. So how is it that we can know that Jesus is sufficient for our salvation to forgive us? In one sense it is because he is God. This is important for us to grasp because who can forgive our sins against God except for God himself? And this is why in Mark chapter 2 when Jesus forgives a man's sins the Pharisees are flabbergasted and they're amazed and they're frustrated and they're angry at him. Because they say, who can forgive sins except God alone? And that is right. Because God alone can forgive sins because all sins are ultimately against God. 
Another way to look at it is, again, who can forgive the rebels of a kingdom except the king? And what we see is that God, Jesus is God over all things, and therefore he is also the king. And only the king can forgive rebels. Only God can forgive our sins against God. And so what do we see? That Jesus is the king who forgives our sins. The point is, when it comes to our redemption, that Jesus is not primarily a teacher. He's not a sage. He's not a moral example to follow. But he is God and king who forgives our sins. Tim Keller, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, in New York, makes this claim about this idea of what makes Christianity unique from a Christian perspective. Obviously, everybody says, yeah, we're unique. Why do Christians say, what is unique about us and our faith? And it's this. All other major faiths have founders who are teachers that show the way of salvation. Only Jesus claims to be the way of salvation himself. See, the moment when our faith becomes focused on, go be like Jesus, we might as well say, okay, that's cool. Well, go be like Muhammad and follow the five pillars. Or go be like like the Buddha and follow the eightfold path. He was a pretty peaceful guy, so go do that. The unique reason why we need Jesus is because not that we need teaching or we need an example. It's that we are rebels who need to be forgiven. And the good news is that God comes to us and transfers us out of the darkness and into the kingdom of His Son, the Son who is the King who can forgive us of our sins. And think then about this kingdom of this King Jesus. Consider the scope and the extent of his kingdom. And in the second point, we see that Christ is the king of all creation. He's the king who forgives, but he is the king of all of creation. You see, verse 15, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. What this means is that Christ is the one who has the right to inherit all of it. That it is under his rule. It is a title signifying that Christ is the king over all of creation. Oftentimes this uh, particular phrase, the firstborn of creation, is misinterpreted by people. They may say, well, see, it says he was the firstborn of creation. So obviously that means he was a created being, the first one to be born. To which the simple response is, look at the context and then understand that this is a title Firstborn is a title of his rule. But look at the context again. You know, uh, um, a few months ago, a Jehovah Witness came to my house um, and came to the door and said, you know, there's a lot of depression going around and we want to tell you how Jesus can help with that. And I said, oh yes, it's great that Jesus can help us with that. How as a man, he understands and sympathizes with our weakness. But then I said, but what's really great is that he saves us from all of our sins because he's fully God and fully man. And if you ask, ask Matheson, at this point, the, the lady started to get a little bit loud at me. <laughs> and she said, no, he is the firstborn of all creation, which means he was born and he was 
created a created being and not God himself. I said, no, 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 no. Look, you have to understand that words have meaning in context. And the context is saying that Jesus is fully God. And, the, and, me, and, and words also have titles. So you have to understand the context and the title. And the context, we see the context is indicating the fullness of the deity of Christ. That he is the creator, but and not himself created. And again, the title, the significance of the title is that he rules over creation as its inheritor. He's the one that has the right of inheritance. He is its king and creator. Psalm 89 verse 27 says this on the title of the firstborn about uh, the, the king of the king of, of David. Looking to Jesus, he says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on all the earth. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings on all the earth. It's the title of his kingship, or Revelation 1, 5 says, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. You see, it is a title signifying that he is ruler and king. You know, I'm the oldest of all of my cousins, so I am got a big extensive family of cousins and so when I go to you know family reunions with my all my cousins they're all there I'm the oldest of all the oldest and I say guys listen to me I am the firstborn of all of you and what do they say yes Jeff we listen we are going to listen to you unfortunately that's only true in my my dreams But it is a statement again. It's a statement. If I were to say that, it's not just saying, look, I came before you guys. It would be a statement of, look, I have authority. This is a statement saying that Christ is the king over all of creation. He is the king over all of creation because he is its creator. He made every single molecule in the universe and he upholds the laws of nature. And the whole universe even exists for his own glory. So what does this mean? That Jesus is the king of all of creation. Well, if you remember uh, in Nacho Libre, where um, Nacho is going to pick up chips for the monastery. There's been chips given to the monastery. And Esqueleto comes and he steals the chips. And he goes back to the monastery without any chips at all. And they say... Did you not tell him that they were the Lord's chips? What this is saying is that all of the chips are the Lord's chips. Not just chips that are given to the monastery, but all of the chips are the Lord's chips. <laughs> to be more precise, Abraham Kuyper put it this way, a, the- a theologian from a while ago. He said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence in which Christ does not say, mine. The entire created order, Christ says, this is mine. You see, he cares about how every domain, how everything in society runs. And he has the right to say, that is mine. He says, the family is mine. Business is mine. Economics is mine. Government is mine. Even Hollywood And entertainment is mine. 
Whatever you do is under the kingship of Christ and should be done for the glory of God. Because he is the king of all creation. And so as far as it depends upon us, we ought to be known as people who are the best workers. As people who are the best business partners. As people who are the most ethical lawyers. The hardest working nurses and doctors. Godly church leaders. Diligent and caring teachers. And inspiring musicians. Because Jesus says, all of these are mine. You know, sometimes they say Christians are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. This ought not to be, tr- be so for us because Christ is the king right now of creation and says, this is mine. Now, when we think about this, oftentimes we can say, well, it really appears right now that Christ is not actually the king of the world. It's what it feels like. When we see uptick in violence over the border, we hear about shootings, we see failings that happen everywhere. So is Christ really the king of creation right now? You see, this passage insists that he is the one who is currently upholding the universe. And it is in his mercy until we can say, yes, in a sense. Yes, the kingdom of Jesus is currently growing and reigning as people are brought into the kingdom of his church from all spheres, in all places. Even people in his church are coming to his church. And yet at the same time, the domain of darkness is still at work all over the world and in every sphere, every single one of them. But the point is that Jesus claims all of it. So ultimately what this means for us is that it it makes us look ahead to the final day of restoration. The day in which all of creation, all of society, all of our relationships will be fully restored to God. This is what it looks to And if Christ is the king of all creation, we see that the scope then of redemption is all things. The scope and extent of redemption is all things. See, Christianity is not just about trusting in Jesus so that one day you get to go to heaven. Of course, we do know that it is true that when believers die, that we are immediately with with God's presence. Jesus says as much to the, to the um, thief on the cross. He says, today you will be with me. We know that. But it is so much more and so much better and so much deeper than just that. The scope of redemption, you see, the scope of redemption is beyond the scope of our rebellion. And how far does the curse of sin in our rebellion reach? sin and sorrow reaches everywhere. It is found in our rebellion against our God. It is found in our rebellion against each other and in society. And it is in this physical world where our bodies are prone to cancers and diseases and pain. We see that the curse is found everywhere. But as far as the curse is found, so his redemption goes even further. As we sing in the song, that great Christmas song, Joy to the World, 
the earth, the king is come. Let earth receive its king. And then as one of the lines goes, no more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. You see, the extent of redemption is as far as and even further than the curse is found in this world. Look at the text in verse 18. He says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, talking about his physical resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent or have the first place. Verse 19. For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so... In verse 20, notice, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. You mean just things in God's heavenly realm? Up there somewhere? No. Verse 20, all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the scope of redemption is all things on heaven and earth. Because as far as the curse is found, so his redemption extends even further. Just as it affects all of our relationships, our relationship with God and with the physical world. Now here's the thing. This belief in a physical future redemption is hard. Belief in some disembodied spirituality would actually be, in some ways, a lot easier. Last, uh, last year, a friend of mine, a pastor friend and I, were going to uh, one of our mentors' birthday up in Boston. And so we're walking around Cambridge, and we go to Harvard. And we decide we're going to go to Harvard Divinity School because they have really good bathrooms, and we're going to go use the bathroom. So we go to use the bathroom at Harvard Divinity School. And then we leave out of the Divinity School, and we're on the way outside. And it was the 200th anniversary for the Divinity School. And we're walking by, and they say, oh, you forgot your your badges, your alumni badges. And before we could say anything, all of a sudden they've given us these alumni badges for this great big event that they're happening. And we're like, okay, well, I guess we should stay for a little while. Because they had really great coffee and beverages. And so we're hanging out of this 200th anniversary alumni uh, for Harvard Divinity School thing. And uh, this guy walks up to us. He says, so what year did you graduate? And we said, okay, well, game's up. So I said, well, actually, we're from the other seminary, Gordon-Conwell. And he said, oh. Because he knew that we believed literally that the scriptures are God's word. And what that means is that we believe in the resurrection, the physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, I wrote a book about heaven. And uh, in this book, he said, you know, heaven is really just something in your mind. It's just this state of mind, and really what it is, it's when, when your brain, the synapses finally die in your brain, and you finally die, it's that feeling that happens there. That's heaven. This thing in your mind. And I left with my friend there, thinking, that is, in some ways, so much easier to believe, but it is ultimately so much sadder. And really, at the end of the day, if that's the truth, who cares? Who cares? 
Michael Williams talking about the resurrection and the physical reality of Jesus' physical return to make a new world says this. Believing believing in something spiritual is easy. Very few people actually refuse to believe in a deity of some sort. But believing that God acted in Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead, and that his resurrection is God's absolute promise that he will be victorious over sin and death and will reclaim his fallen creation in the glory of Christ's return. Now that is faith. You see, it's healthy for us to recognize in a way that faith that a dead man rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and he's one day going to come back and renew our bodies and renew this world, it's pretty crazy. And it takes faith to believe it. But you know the thing is, it always has. You know, when Paul went around talking about Christ, people loved his philosophy and his ideas. But then when he got to the resurrection... Some people were like, okay, I'm going to go over here now and not listen to that anymore. Because that's crazy. Everybody, It's been an idea that's been crazy forever. But the truth is, it is grounded in faith. But it is, it is rooted and grounded in a man who claims to be God. And if he is God, then he could and was raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead in actuality, then he did physically appear to 500 witnesses as the testimonies say. And if that is the case, why else? Why else would a group of scaredy cats huddling in a room be transformed into bold witnesses for something that they just imagined up in their head? They wouldn't. But if Jesus was raised and appeared to them in the flesh, in the body, then they would know that he is king. They would have known that he is the king who forgives. They would have known that he is the king over creation. And that he is going to return and make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. So we like them. We can face whatever comes because we know that one day King Jesus will return and make his blessings to flow as far as the curse is found. What great hope we have. It is a hope that is found only in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that even though we who are more sinful than we actually know are more loved by you, O Lord, because of your Son who went to the cross to pay the penalty, the consequences of our sins so that we might be transferred into the kingdom of your Son, Lord God. Lord, we thank you that it is in Christ who is risen and reigning that we have hope for today. That it is in Christ we have hope for your coming because we know, Lord Jesus, by the eyes of faith, that you have risen from the dead and that you are the King. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.